there it is. <laughs> Not a single awe in the room. Zero. What is your problem, people? <laughs> For real. I mean, that, that is really, in many ways, the classic fairy tale story, right? I mean, uh, the, the details change here and there in the other stories, but at the end of the day, it's very similar. I mean, sometimes the frog is a prince and the princess is the hero. Sometimes the prince is a beast and the princess is the hero. Sometimes the prince, princess is in a tower with long hair and sometimes she's in a tower sleeping. It just kind of depends. The details kind of change, but at the end of the day, the classic story, the classic fairy tale that is written out of us to one another is really captured in that scene. Uh, there is always, in every classic fairy tale, there is always the grand villain, isn't there? The villain changes from dragons to queens to witches to whatever else we can come up with, but ultimately there is that villain in the story. The villain is the one that comes to the innocent and takes from them what is theirs and robs them of their life and locks them away either under some curse or in some tower or under some spell, and there they wait, there they are stuck for love to come in the form of a redeemer or rescuer, a hero, who will come and rescue them from the villain. So you have your villain, then you have your victim, who's been taken by the villain in some way, and then you have your hero, who is the prince who's going to save the day. And so we come up with terms like our Prince Charming and the princess in the tower and the dragon, right? And, and these are stories that we write. These are stories we conceive of as humanity because in many ways, what is coming out of us is what is already in us. Uh, the stories that we conceive of are stories we resonate with, stories we find within ourselves, needs and desires we see there. And so we articulate those in the stories that we write. So in conclusion then, if these stories are born out of us, and they are these beautiful rescue stories of the princess taken by the villain, rescued by the prince, then it uh, sort of seems obvious that if we enter into the real human story and we read that story, we should see some things really f uh, resonate with and be very familiar to us, and there should be some tie-ins. I mean, we kind of we should find ourselves in the story or find the story in our story. And our story was written for us by our Creator uh, through the journey of Scripture in the Bible to say, here's the human story. Here's how the human story plays out. So let's enter into that story as we head into the Christmas season and see, just as we saw out of war and turmoil in this story, peace emerging, let's see how peace came our way as humanity and how our Redeemer and Rescuer came to save us uh, from the tower and the villain. Let's dig in and see if our story looks the same as that story, as the fairy tale. Now you can go with me on this one um, and, and we're going to go fast and furious or you can sit back and listen as I tell the story and reference scriptures as we go. It's up to you. If you want to run with us, there's Bibles available, grab them and uh, we're going to begin in the very first book of the Bible in the book of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 1 we are told that the creator creates the beginning of the story. He creates a setting, a scene uh, in which he's going to place our part in the story. Creation is created. We are brought into that. We are also created, but we are created uniquely. 
in the likeness of our Creator. We are not our creators, but we are in the likeness of our Creator. We are made like Him because we discover in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 that ultimately, as we are created, we are created with an extraordinary purpose, an extraordinary reality. We are created to experience the full implications of intimacy with God, absolute freedom, absolute revelation, absolute clarity, absolute life, absolute light. So we are created without anything inside of us that is what we know as the word need that drives us. The only piece in our human story in the early part of the story that seemed missing wasn't so much about us as much as it was about us being able to fulfill our secondary purpose, which was to make God known, and that is that we needed community because God exists in community and we exist in isolation, and so we needed community and God created Adam and Eve, and in that perfect, wondrous reality of communal human existence, we walked around and we displayed, demonstrated, declared the realities of the person in whose likeness we were made. We were like him. We call it imaging. We imaged God. So when we spoke, when we acted, when we walked, the things that came out of us were the same things that would come out of God. So light and life and freedom and peace and joy, these kinds of things were our reality. Now in Genesis chapter 3, we walk into the story, we're not even literally paging page one of the story, and we find what we typically think of the moment where the villain comes and secretly, through trickery, tricks us into something we did not intend and gets us trapped by some curse, right? We kind of think of it that way, because there's an apple involved, and there was an apple in Sleeping Beauty, and, um, and there's, there's, the, there's a villain involved, and, and we're the princess walking around in the garden, and we tricked into eating the innocent apple. Kind of like the story, right? The villain shows themselves as a beautiful queen and then presents a perfectly good apple, doesn't tell us the truth about the apple, says, here, eat this, it's for you, I love you, the apple's just fine. We eat it and we're shouting outside of the TV screen, no, the apple is poisoned. Like the princess needs to know that from us because she doesn't know. She eats it and falls asleep. Our story, interestingly enough, goes slightly differently here. It's almost the same, but the subtlety and difference here is important to realize. You see, in our story, the villain doesn't present himself as some beautiful, wondrous queen. He comes as a snake, actually. Have you ever seen a snake? I mean, you don't go, oh, I want to hug that thing. Some of you, it's true. But for most of us, it's like, ah, snake, bad. Okay, so he comes as a snake. And here's the crazy part about the story in Genesis. He doesn't come to us and say, hey, eat of this fruit. It's a perfectly good piece of fruit. I picked it from one of the trees in the garden. I don't know which one. Here, take a bite. He doesn't do that. He actually brings us to the tree that we already know is death, and he says to us this. We know what this fruit is, right? It's the poison fruit. But here's the deal. You see, the Prince Charming that you love so much and loves you, he's lying to you. He's telling you it's poisonous. In other words, it's going to cause death, but that's not true at all. I'm telling you, the snake, I'm telling you, actually the reason he told you not to eat the fruit is because he doesn't want you to overthrow him and become bigger than he is so that he can't rule over you. You see, in our story, we weren't tricked into believing the fruit we ate was just a different fruit from a different tree. 
we were told exactly what it was. This is the bad fruit, but it's not bad because the prince is lying to you. What princess in their right mind goes, I think my prince is lying to me. I, I, I know it. Well, we, we did. We did. We went, yeah, you, you know what? It sounds like a much better idea for me to write my own story, pursue my own fate and destiny, become my own God, and image myself. That's a much better story. I like that one. And so we ate of the fruit. And indeed, when we ate of the forbidden fruit, death entered into our story. And it says, as death and sin came into us, it corrupted us, it changed us, it shaped us, it made us utterly different. We moved from being in the image of our creator to being something completely corrupted from that image. And from that movement forward, as we travel through the story in the scriptures, we see an interesting string of events taking place. So if we're just observers of the story now, we're not in it, we don't know, we're just going to read it, let's see what we discover. So Genesis chapter 4, right after the incident in the garden, where we knowingly ate the poisonous fruit because we thought the prince was lying, right? Knowingly we do that. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 8, it says this, Cain spoke to Abel. Cain and Abel were two of the sons of the first people in the garden, Adam and Eve, who ate of the fruit. Cain uh, spoke to his brother, Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Cain wanted what Abel had. Abel wouldn't give it to him, so Cain killed Abel. That's the very first human experience we have after the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. That's it. The first moment we bump into humanity, one of them's killing the other one. They murder them because they want what the other one has. From Cain and Abel's incident, we get chapter 5 listing out from us just the literally the, the descendants from Adam to Noah. And then in chapter 6, after the descendants are listed, chapter 6, we haven't even turned page 1 of our story. Chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, you, you, get, you get bored with a sentence that runs so long, right? Okay, so every thought and every intention behind the thought of both the mind and the heart were evil at every moment all the time. That's what that verse says. There was no break in the evil thoughts we were having. We were evil toward one another, evil toward our creator, evil toward anything, and evil toward ourselves. Every intention and thought we had was evil. That's it. Chapter 6, Genesis. Oh, wow. So God affects a plan. He comes in, saves humanity from ourselves and our own self-destruction by pulling out Noah and his family, doing some special things in them, putting them inside a bubble, a boat, and then bringing a flood that would clear the entire story and go, okay, we're going to start in a different place. Adam and Eve started us off in the garden. Noah and his family now start us off here. We enter into a story. Humanity starts producing, reproducing, and there's more and more of us. And we get to chapter 11 right after the flood and the uh, reproduction of humanity in terms of uh, just uh, more and more people. And says, verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And verse 4 says, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. 
There's our human story again. Now we've gotten together, and instead of trying to kill each other, we go, let's, let's go at the divine, man. Let's prove our power. Let's set ourselves up. Let's build a city for ourselves and a tower for our name. Let's image ourselves. From that moment forward, here's basically our human story. God disperses us into language groups and people groups. And then from that point on, whether, he's, whether it's God's people or the rest of the planet, we basically do two things with God. We are either manipulating him to try to get what we need from him, going, oh my goodness, my life is horrible. What do you need from me? But really our motive is, I need from you. What is it going to take to get it? Or we're shaking our fist at him going, we're better than you. That's the entire story of the, of the, the people of God. When they've got what they need, ah, who needs you? And when they don't have what they need, oh, what do we do to get you to give us what we want? And that's our human story throughout the Old Testament. It just goes back and forth and circles around the secular world, the, the people of God, kind of similar, just these guys are protected by God's grace. We get to the point where our creator comes to planet Earth to come and rescue us, and what do we do? Some of us follow him because he heals sick people and he feeds hungry people, right? I mean, he produces bread and he makes your sickness go away. That's worth following him. But at a certain point, the, uh, the leadership of God's people and the leadership of the Gentile people, Rome and the Jewish leadership, actually join forces to do what? To crucify the prince. I love this story, man. Like, humanity takes the prince who's coming to rescue them and they crucify him on a cross and shake their fists while he dies and those few that followed him for a bunch of miracles go, well, no miracles now, I'm scared, and they do nothing. And we stand around and watch us do that to the prince of peace. In the rest of the New Testament, God begins to describe to us what's going on. In Romans chapter 8, verse 6, it says the mind set on the, uh, on the things of the flesh, set on self, is hostile toward God. <laughs> Do you hear that? Hostile toward God. Does not want to please him. In fact, it cannot. Okay? So our, our minds and our hearts are hostile toward the Prince of Peace. In, in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, it actually says, you were once darkness, before Jesus came. You were darkness. It describes us as darkness, hostile toward God. In Romans chapter 5, it says, you were enemies of God when he came to get you. It describes us as the enemy to God, as the enemy to God. In Ephesians uh, chapter 2, we see this kind of played out beautifully as Paul writes and he writes these words as though to kind of describe to us who we are. Verse one of chapter two, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Yikes! That's what we're described as. We were aligned with, following, passionately captivated by the villain who was in the garden with us. Because we had become darkness, we had become like him, and we attacked the same things he attacked. 
You know what we discover as we read our story? You know where it, where it diverts from the fairy tale? We're not the princess, folks. We're not the princess. We're not locked in a tower. We're not longing for our Prince Charming to come. Our heart isn't beating as we see Jesus fight the, the dragon. We have, don't have our makeup on and we're not standing there with birds on our little arms singing, come Lord Jesus, come, I wait for you. That's not us. Now you know who we are? We're the villain in the story. We're the villain in the story. Read it. We're the villain. We became the villain when we entered out of life into death and we began to align ourselves with the villain and we became like the villain and when our prince comes for us, we fight him with our claws drawn and our swords out and our teeth gnarling and we go, you don't get to come for me. John says, when the light came into the world, we hated the light and ran from it. We are not the princess. We are the villain. I am afraid of two things in life. Only really two things. I'm not afraid of most anything, but I'm afraid of two things. I'm afraid of heights. I am. I am afraid of high places and high things. I'm not afraid of dying, but I'm afraid of the falling part. That part kind of scares me a bit, okay? I don't like heights. They seem dangerous to me. So I jump out of planes and off cliffs and ride roller coasters to continue to remind myself that my fears don't get to control me. I control them. And so I constantly do that. It hasn't really worked. I'm still afraid of heights, but I still do it. I still constantly do it. But I'm afraid of one other thing more than I am afraid of heights. I'll take heights over this thing. I am afraid of the dark. I am afraid of the dark. I'm 40 years old, I'm afraid of the dark. You guys, no you're not. Yes I am. I am afraid of the dark. Now the reason that hasn't been a reality in my life that has been consistent is because for the last 17 years, I have been married to this incredibly wondrous woman who's an aerobics instructor and she sleeps next to me in my bed and protects me at night from the dark, okay? <laughs> That's why I don't feel afraid of the dark every night because Brooke lays next to me and I go, I am safe because the light is next to me. But when my wife goes out of town for a few days, my wrestle begins because I know that my fears are irrational, but then I get into bed and I try to stay up as late as I can. I watch movies until it's like three in the morning because I'm so exhausted I'm gonna fall asleep. Then I go in my room and I tell myself, you will turn the closet light off. You will go to bed in the dark because you're a grown man. <laughs> and then I turn the light off and I walk and I get in the bed and I lay there and my heart is beating and I'm sweating. I'm like, I don't think I can fall asleep. I'm so exhausted, but it's so dark. And then I lay there and I fight with myself. Stay in the bed. Do not turn the closet light on. You do not need light. You are crazy, man. And there I am, wrestling with myself. And I, I, here's the crazy part. You ready for this? I am not afraid of other human beings. I'm just not. Sometimes I'm stronger than you. Sometimes you're stronger than me. If you overcome me, I die, go to heaven. If I overcome you, well, I don't know what your fate is because I don't know if you know Jesus. But the bottom line is, I'm not afraid of you. Come break in my house. I don't care. I'll, I'll, I'll fight. What I'm afraid of in the dark are things that don't exist. It's crazier than you thought. Like, this is our pastor. I am afraid of things that don't even exist. I am afraid of what's under the bed and the crack in the closet. And I'm like, this is insane. This is crazy, man. Why? Why am I so afraid of the dark? I know exactly why I'm so afraid of the dark. 
It's an amazing thing in our human psyche how that works. See, when I was in early middle school, maybe even late elementary school, I don't remember exactly, uh, my parents were those set of parents that were really careful about what they allowed me to see and hear and watch. Then I wasn't so grateful because I thought they were like authorities over me that were trying to steal my joy and I wanted to watch all the cool stuff. Now I look back and I'm incredibly grateful that I had parents that fought battles to keep me safe even against my own desires and wants. So my parents are very careful with that. And at one point, they let me go to a sleepover. They were careful about where I went for sleepovers because they wanted to make sure they knew what was going to be happening there. This was a school friend. They kind of knew them, kind of knew the parents, kind of thought that there was a safe environment, sent me in there. And that night, the dad thought uh, it would be a great idea to show us a horror movie. I'm in elementary school. I've watched things like, you know, Veggie Tales at this point. <laughs> Okay, that didn't exist back then, but similar things. And I'm, I'm, I, I'm in this house, and he waits until it's late. I don't usually stay up late, so I'm tired. And then he takes these, myself and my friend, and he puts on a movie called Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, which if, if you, you watch a movie with that kind of title, know that what it means is be afraid of the dark. So don't be afraid of the dark. And I watched that movie, and he kept us awake through the movie, and it absolutely rocked my world. Because as an elementary student or an early middle school student, I had this uh, intrinsic belief that if I died, I would go and be with Jesus and everything would be fine, so life and death didn't matter. But this movie, the premise was simple. The monsters that don't exist come out and they take the innocent, awesome family in the house one at a time. And when they take that family member, they turn the family member into one of them and then you, the family member that's now been taken captive by the dark side, become the monster that kills the rest of your family. For an elementary school student, that was my worst nightmare right there that there was now a second scenario that was possible, that I would not die and go to heaven, but would be made into an evil little monster that would kill my family. It is the classic zombie movie, isn't it? But just done with much scarier characters in a little house. And for months, even years, I had nightmares about those things and had to overcome and work through that. And even now at 40 years old, I have to lay in my bed alone when my wife has gone and convince myself that what I believe is not true. It's crazy. But here's what I've come to realize. If we want to be honest with ourselves, our story is not much like the fairy tale we started with today. It's much like the zombie horror flick. That's actually what our story's like. See, if we read our story without knowing any better and just observing, here's what we determine. Humanity was created in beauty in the likeness of the creator. We chose a different life. We chose to step into the zombie world. We were turned into zombies and we now fight against the one who created us and against each other because that's what zombies do. They have no thought or feeling for anything or anyone other than their internal war and they chase after that. And that is in fact our story. We are the villain. You must place yourself in that fairy tale scene and imagine the Prince of Peace with his shield and his sword fighting the big dragon off like this and next to the dragon is an army of medium-sized dragons with their teeth snarled and their claws going after him equally as vengeful as the dragon itself and that's us. The tower is empty, folks. The makeup is gone and we are fighting our Redeemer. That's where our story lands. So what should we expect if this is our story? If this is what the scriptures is relating to us, what should our expectation be of the one that's coming? 
Well, it should be what every villain in every good fairy tale receives. We should expect no less. What does every villain in every fairy tale live out? What is their fate? Well, it starts here. They start at war, always. They are at war with themselves. They are at war with everyone. And they are at war, most of all, with anyone that threatens their primary goal. And what is the goal of every great villain in every great fairy tale story? They want to rule, don't they? What villain doesn't want to rule? Have you ever heard of one? They want to be the king of the world, the queen of the world. They want to rule over all of the world. They want to own the world. Lex Luthor, it doesn't matter. Everybody wants the same thing. They want to rule the world. And because they want to rule the world, because they want to be the king, they are at war from the second their lives begin. Because everyone is their enemy. Because everyone is against them. Because everyone's going to take from them what is theirs. So even if you are the friend of the villain, we all know how the story goes, right? What happens to the friends of the villain? They die by the hand of the villain. That's how it always happens. And so we find ourselves, if we are indeed the villains, that our fate should begin with war. Not peace, but war. And we see this observably in our lives, don't we? Have any of you guys ever been around little children? Like just after they're born, you birth them? Have you read the books? The books tell you your first three months are critical. Because everything you do in those first three months will train the kid how to manipulate you or not manipulate you, depending. It depends on who's the most powerful manipulator at that point, right? It's a battle. Your battle begins three days after birth. <laughs> yeah, it does. Like, no, it doesn't. Yes, it does. Three months in, that child will have figured out when to cry and how to cry to get exactly what they want. They will, I'm telling you. You put them down in their crib, they'll scream their head off. Not because the crib is not safe or because they don't want to be there, but because they just want to rather be in your arms. And then you end up one of those moms, right? Like we all did at some point if we were women or dads, if you're a man, holding your baby for seven years and going, this is crazy, man. I need some sleep. Why? Because your child figured out at three months old how to become king or queen. And if you wait till year one, you're in deep trouble. And by year two, it's the terrible twos. And they will make you do what they want. They will throw themselves down on the floor in the grocery store and start throwing stuff at the shelves while your three best friends are walking by who don't have kids yet going, oh my goodness, they are crazy. And you'll go, candy? You want candy? Hot chocolate? Anything. And they'll go, oh, I got this woman nailed. I got this dad solidly trapped. That's at age two. They can hardly speak. That's what we do. And as we grow up, it just shapes differently, right? We just learn when we get to be kind of in the pre-teen and teen world, you can't go directly at the adult because they're bigger and stronger than you and they have this thing called consequences that gets really ugly, but you can lie to them, go around them and stab them in the back. It's much more effective. So we figure that out. Then we adults weed our kids through that and they get into workplaces and they learn quickly that the resumes you build and the way you strategically work through the work world will depend on how far you get so everyone becomes your enemy. And we find ourselves at war with ourselves and at war with everyone around us. Our spouse was supposed to come and fulfill all our needs. They don't because actually they got in it to fulfill their needs. Who knew? If they told me that up front, I might not have done this craziness. And then that turns into a fight, so you find a new one. And your kids, you look at them and go, who are you and why are you here? I birthed you to fulfill my heart. You are not doing that. And that's our life. In the book of um, Jeremiah, there's so many of these in the Old Testament. I just picked one. Jeremiah says this. Listen to this. He describes this. 
Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 13. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wounds of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. That's our story in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, James writes it this way. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Ta-da! The fate of every villain. And then after that fate comes the next story, a line in the fate. The villain is at war, number one. Number two, then justice comes to the villain. Justice comes swiftly through some great goods, through love, through the prince of peace, through whatever. And the villain faces the prince. And we, watching the fairy tale, cheer on, kill the villain. And if the villain doesn't die and gets put in prison somewhere, locked away in some dungeon or on some planet somewhere else, and the movie ends without the villain dying, what do we know? There's a second movie coming. Because if the villain's not dead, he's coming back. The villain is not finally taken care of until he is good and dead. And when he dies, we cheer. A villain's fate is war, justice, death. The villain's fate. Welcome to our story. If we are villains, then this is our fate. So, When God enters into our story in tangible form, and before he comes, he sends heralds our way to warn us that he's coming, now that you know the story, what do you think we would expect the heralds to say? I mean, it's nice that he's sending heralds, right? The Prince of Peace is coming. The herald comes to say what to the villain? We've seen it in the fairy tales, right? Uh, Oh, man, I would highly recommend you run. Why? The Prince of Peace is coming, and he's going to come kill you. Well, I'm stronger than him. Oh, no, you're not. Oh, yes, I am. And death to the villain. We all know, like, don't run, don't run. He'll kill you. And so the heralds come, and they warn the villain of an impending doom that is coming. In Luke chapter 2, just before the Savior is born onto planet Earth, just before the Prince of Peace comes for us, the heralds come, and they herald the news. And this is what we hear them say. Luke chapter 2, verse 10 And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. That is the oddest herald I've ever heard considering the story, right? I mean, I can imagine many things. Fear, big time. Shepherds, you're lucky. You get to know first that Jesus is coming to kill you. So run for your lives to the mountains, but don't worry, the mountains will fall on you and you'll die anyway. See, that's what I'm expecting. Knowing the story, that's what should be happening. The angel should be coming to tell us, I'm so sorry, villain, but the Prince of Peace is coming for you. So your story is over, your time is done, justice is on its way, and death will follow shortly after. But the angel shouts, good news I have for you of great joy for all mankind. And then listen to this. In verse 14, a multitude of angels show up in the same place and they sing this, glory to God in the highest. I get that part. God's coming, glory to him, not glory to you. You're the villain. And on earth, war and death for all mankind. No, no, we we know the song. It doesn't say that. It says, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace. 
for the villain. What on earth is going on? Well, we find out in the book of Ephesians, uh, Paul is writing there and he tells us why this insanity is happening. Why, if we are the reader of the story, we're going, oh, whoa, whoa, stop this story. I hate the villain. Kill the villain. No, 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 I'm gonna bring peace to the villain. No, you're not. That's a dragon, man. Have you seen what that thing has in his mouth? It's teeth. You kill him. No, no, watch, listen. So in Ephesians chapter two, verse one through three, you heard me earlier. We are children of wrath, chasing after our fleshly passions and, and obeying the prince of the air of the power of disobedience. We heard all that. And then verse four says this. It ends in verse three. Uh, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then verse four. And God coming with vengeance came to wipe us out. That would have been perfectly acceptable. But it doesn't say and God. It says this. But God. Now that's an odd statement, isn't it? Because it seems like God's gonna do something extraordinary, odd, different. See, supposed to, and God came to kill them, but no, but God, okay, but God what? But God what? We're children of wrath, part of the enemy, the villains, but God what? But God being rich in mercy. That's an interesting statement, man. See, it doesn't take mercy to rescue the beautiful princess, does it? Think about that. Did the prince go in there? Here's the beautiful princess, her makeup perfect, a little bird in her hair. She's sleeping quietly on that bed thing. And he goes, because I am merciful, I will kiss you. No, no, because you're smart, you kiss her. You don't kiss her because you're merciful. She's a beautiful princess laying on a beautiful table and she's waited for you her whole life and she's gonna love you until you die singing songs together. You kiss her because that's the truth. You don't kiss her because you're full of mercy. When you're full of mercy, that's what you're about to affect on your enemy. See, that's why you say that statement. But God, being full of mercy, aha, uh -huh, now it's gonna tie back to the villain, being full of mercy, look at this, because of the great love with which he loved us. See, it's almost like Paul saying, I know this is gonna be really odd that you are living in this place where the reality is that the enemy should be dying, the villain should be slaughtered, but somehow God's gonna do something utterly different and I'll tell you why he's gonna do it. Because he's full of mercy and because the love with which he loved you was so great that it overcame your zombiness. Take a look. And by great, look, look what it says. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were the walking dead, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and placed us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What we discover in our story is that the Prince of Peace who comes does not come to slay the dragon and kill the villain. No, no. Something utterly more beautiful happens than that. He comes to let the dragon slay him so that he would become justice for the dragon and then 
redeem the dragon and make the dragon beautiful again. That's insane. In the book of Isaiah, it writes it so beautifully when it says these words. Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 53, it says this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the wrath or the chastisement of God that brought us peace again. It's insane what Jesus did for us. That he gave himself for us so that he could make us new again. This is not a fairy tale. It's much better than a fairy tale. It's something so impossible that it could only take a God full of mercy and grace to affect this incredible story. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says that the old is gone and the new has come, right? The old is gone and the new has come. We are new creations in Christ. He literally says, you were once my enemy. You were once darkness. You were once death. You were once the dragon itself. But now that I have done my work, I have made you new and you are once again made in my likeness to live out my purpose for you in my story for you to enjoy my freedom and my life in you and through you. That is our story. And then, as though not to end it there, but to say, and what I created you for, to image me, I will allow you to enjoy that privilege for a time on planet Earth before I bring you to realize the fullness of your redemption. And so he calls us to mission. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, right after he says, you are a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come, he says, and now I have made you reconcilers of men to God. You get to go out and live in my likeness and bring life to death. You are my ambassadors. And so we find our mission that we get to go out into the world of zombies of which we once were and we don't get to fear that world. We don't get to become like that world but we get to rise up and bring life to that world because we are ambassadors of Christ. And then we say, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, that sounds great, but you haven't seen me during the week. Half the time I'm wanting what that world wants. Half the time I'm fighting with my children and fighting with my spouse and fighting with my roommate and fighting with my boss and fighting with my employees and fighting for position and fighting for stuff. I'm scared when I don't have enough money. I don't want my stuff to be done. I mean, I act like a zombie. I'm like, yeah, no, I know, but don't worry, that's explained in scripture too. You see, what God said to us is that now that he's given us peace internally with God, we have peace with God because we are no longer enemies of God. We are now the righteous of God. We are the children of God. We are friends of God. And so now we have that as a reality. But we are still stuck in the body of flesh and sin. So he says, I want you to know, don't, don't be unaware of this. There is gonna be a war that's gonna go on between your soul and your flesh now because your flesh is still gonna want what your flesh has always wanted, but your soul is set free with peace now. And so you'll find yourself warring back and forth, sometimes acting like a zombie, sometimes acting like a human again that God created. And as you do that, know this. Philippians chapter one. 
for the work that I began in you, I will complete in you before the day of Christ Jesus. So now God even says this, the zombiness part of you, don't worry, I'm at work on that in a process called sanctification. That is, I am making you like me again. I have made you fully like me internally, and now I'm making you like me as an external reality. And so, though the internal reality of peace, that eternal life that we now know we have peace with, so we do not fear death, we do not fear life anymore, in terms of what's coming at us, that eternal peace will begin to bleed into the rest of your life and begin to produce fruit of peace around you. What? What do you mean? Now listen. You will find yourself as you begin to follow Jesus and the Spirit of God begins to sanctify you, you'll find yourself doing really odd things as life progresses. At moments when your children or your spouse or your friends are fighting you and you should fight back because you're a villain, you're suddenly gonna have this deep feeling and you're going, ah, it's, I don't wanna fight anymore. I just feel compassion toward you, man, I wanna love you. And you're gonna go, whoa, what on earth is happening to me? And God will go, don't worry, I'm just, I'm working on you. I'm shaping you, I'm molding you. Sometimes it'll come through hard trials and tribulations, sometimes through wonderful and beautiful things, but I'm gonna make you like me, man, while you're on planet earth, not just when you leave. And progressively throughout your life as you age, you will look more and more like me, become more and more in tune with me, and then peace will emerge. Remember that verse in Romans chapter eight, verse six, it said the, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, does not want to please God. It also says this in that verse, but the mind that is set on the spirit is life and peace. And so we find ourselves being made like our creator again, even though we are fully made like him internally already. And this is our incredible privilege, that peace came to us when our prince gave himself for us to make his enemy his friend. It's crazy. And now he says to us, go out into the world, and as you go, whoever the villain is in your day today, Maybe it's your spouse, yeah, villain today. Maybe it's your child, up oh, villain. Maybe it's your parent, up oh, villain. Maybe it's your boss or your employee. Maybe it's a neighbor that has a dog that barks all night. You know, who knows? Who's your villain today? Well, go to your villain and give yourself up and bring them life and peace. What? Why? Because while you were my villain, I came and died for you and gave myself for you to make you my brother. So this is your privilege. This is your privilege. We become peacemakers. We become peacemakers because we have been made right with God and have peace with God. This is why Jesus is called our Prince of Peace. In the church communal experience, Jesus knew, as God did uh, throughout history, that we would need points, markers in our world to come back and fix our minds on the things of the Spirit, fix our minds on Jesus so that they would be minds of life and peace, not minds of hostility and war. And so in the last 
uh, moments on planet Earth, Jesus was with his boys over supper, and it was the, the Passover meal representing the rescue of God, of his people out of Egypt, and he says to them, listen, I know this meal represents that great rescue story, and it will continue to do that, but in addition to that, it now represents the greater rescue story, not the shadow of a rescue story, it, it represents me. So from now on, whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, remember what I'm about to do for you, why? Because when our minds are set on this fact, I was the villain deserving war, justice, and death, and my savior, my prince of peace, came and allowed me to slay him so that he could rescue me from darkness and make me new again, and make me his child and his friend and his brother. When I think on such things, what choice do I have but to be a peacemaker as I walk into the world? So Jesus said, come to the table of communion and remember me so that in turn your life will flow out of that reality. And so what an appropriate time for us as a community of Christ followers to remember Jesus around the table of communion and to set our hearts and minds on him. And as we remember today, let us remember not that the prince came and saved us from the tower as we longed and waited for him, but in fact that the prince spared us as the villain and died to make us new. This is our story. And let us become ambassadors of peace, peacemakers on behalf of our Prince of Peace. Communion is very simple. We come together around the table and uh, someone behind the table, one of our elders or deacons will break uh, the bread for you, unleavened bread, and hand it to you. You will dip it either in the juice or the wine, whatever is your preference. There's no biblical precedent for one or the other. And then as you place it in your mouth and the tastes engage your senses, let it engage your heart and mind and soul and meditate on the Prince of Peace who saved you from remaining a villain and facing justice and death. And then let him speak to you there. This table, Paul says, is a table to remember Jesus. That's what it's for, that's its purpose. Any other purpose is a misuse of this table and absolutely irrelevant and silly. So here at Mosaic Church, it plays this way, it's very simple. I don't care what church you come from, whether you're visiting on vacation, this is your first time or ninth time or 500th time, I don't care if you remember there or remember here. If you know Jesus and you're coming to remember him, then you ought to come and share with us in this and allow the table of communion to bring remembrance to your mind and to bring a deep sense of who you are in Jesus now. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, you're, you're visiting, you're like, I, I don't really know what you're talking about, message seemed cool, but I, I'm on a journey here, I, I don't know, I'll come to the table if that's what I do, is that a religious thing we do? Uh, if that's you, can I just tell you this, you'll be tempted to come to the table because you'll feel like you don't want people to think you're weird because you're just sitting back there and then they'll know, oh my gosh, you're not spiritual. That's not how things work around here at all. In fact, we deeply, deeply honor authenticity and courage. We think it very courageous when people say, you know what, I'd like to be authentic rather than fake. I don't know what it means to come and remember Jesus, so I don't know why I should do this religious craziness. Then I'd say, no, you shouldn't. You see, relax, enjoy the freedom in this place. Watch others as they come and step into something very deeply meaningful to them as you observe that and see what God is doing in them. If on the other hand, you're on your spiritual journey, you're not totally sure where you're at, but you go, yeah, I, I wanna think about Jesus. I wanna remember him. Yeah, come, remember what he's done, man. 
and go sit and meditate on that. So don't come fill your bellies or don't come make a point to the rest of the people. Come to remember Jesus and come freely. We're gonna worship together and as we worship together, anytime during the worship time, feel free to come to one of the six tables that are around the room. You can come quickly or you can linger for a while, prepare your hearts and come then. Or you can come and then go sit and meditate. It's up to you, but just come whenever you're ready as we worship together and remember the communion table and what Jesus has done for us. Would you pray with me, please? God, as we come to this table, once again, we consider it a great honor that you allow us to come regularly and remember you. Remember what you've done for us. Remember that we needed rescue, not from a villain, but from ourselves. And you did that. God, when we gnarled our teeth at you, you touched us with life after we devoured you. You came back from the dead for us. As we drink and eat together now, would you stir up in us a great and deep sense of your mercy and grace that we would be overwhelmed and captivated by what you've done for us and that we would be compelled (laughs) to go out there and to be peacemakers on your behalf. We love you, Jesus. We worship you, Prince of Peace. We come to celebrate you now. Enjoy this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.